Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Drew Dolan with us from DXD Capital, and you can learn more about what him and his team are doing at dxd.capital. Drew, I really appreciate your time here today as we talk about storage. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me on. Nice to see you. So, you know, uh, first of all, you take a different approach to, to the storage uh an acquisition process. So we're going to dive a little deeper into that. But before we do that, why why focus on storage units? I, I gotta I gotta start there. Well, my background's really diverse. I started in office, did a lot of multifamily, senior living, then self storage, a little bit of hospitality mixed in there. So I've seen a lot of different asset classes. And I, you know, we when I jumped into storage about six years ago. I was knee deep in senior living. And what I was really excited about is it's the exact opposite. When I, when I say that, I mean, senior living is, it's not real estate. It's an operating business that uses real estate. Self-storage is all about the real estate, the location, what you build, the unit mix. And, you know, having been a, having a diverse background, the more I could be focused on the real estate and less on the operations, the better my skills, you know, what I had knowledge in was going to, was going to bear fruit for me. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. In fact, uh, it's, it's amazing how unpassive real estate investing can actually be. We always focus on the passive real estate investing, but that's far from it, isn't it? Yeah. And you know what? Storage has this kind of cool cachet around it because Everybody knows somebody that's done well in self-storage. It's a incredibly quickly growing uh, asset class. So 15 years ago, 8% of the U.S. population used it. Now it's 12%. So that's a 50% increase in 15 years. Millennials and Gen Z are using it at a higher rate percentage than baby boomers, which kind of shocked me. I thought when I dug into who uses storage, I thought the vast majority would be baby boomers downsizing and it's millennials and Gen Z bouncing around from city to city, job to job and renting smaller apartments or buying smaller homes in better locations. And uh, what what really kicked off DXD is that we I had been using data at a very at a, at a relatively high level to make investment decisions. And um, what what got me really excited because storage is a commodity. You know, there's there's not a there's no brand loyalty. When somebody uses storage, they go through this decision matrix of how close is it to my house, what's the price, and is the unit size I want uh, available. And once they get through that, and yeah, it has to be clean and feel good, and your wife has to feel comfortable going there, which a lot of the you know all the Class A new facilities do, but. They don't care whether it says public storage or extra space. And, you know, the thesis behind this was, is that you could use data at a very high level to make investment decisions. And that was how DXD was born to use uh, very unique data and proprietary analytics just to be the best investor in self-storage. 
And self-storage is a very micro market uh, real estate. It doesn't really matter what's going on in the whole city. It matters what's going on in that 10 to 15 minute drive time or that three mile radius. And if you can study the, all the data available and draw conclusions, you have a better chance of being successful. And that's really the that's really the thesis behind what we do is lots of data, lots of tech, lots of tools just to make the best investment decisions. Well, can you give us a little insight? You you keep you mentioned data quite a few times there. What type of data or what makes your strategies different from from some of your peers? On that note, so storage from an institutional perspective, you know, uh, and what I mean is the sophistication generally of the equity that participates. Uh, it's not at the it's not the most sophisticated sector. You know, it's way behind multifamily or hospitality. And uh, as an indication of that, Radius Plus, uh, who is our strategic partner, they about six years ago, went out and identified every single storage facility in the country, all 55,000 of them, identified where they were, how big they were, what's the climate controlled, non-climate controlled mix, what year they were built. And before they did it, no no one knew where the entire buy data set for self-storage was. Before they created that database, it did not exist. And think about that for hotels or multifamily, you know, you have axiometrics and star reports and, you know, all these other uh, Zonda or, you know, uh, Metro study for other asset classes that have been around for decades. Storage didn't have an all-encompassing database until like six years ago. So it kind of gives you an indication of how, you know, far behind it, it was or antiquated it was. So uh, Radius, you know, my partners, Corey Sylvester and James DeGorder went out and created that database. And they were using that, that database was available. They created a very elegant interface for people that wanted to know what was going on in a particular market or a particular site. And you could drop a pin anywhere in the country and have it calculate how much square footage is around you. What's the population, income levels, all this other data that you could draw decisions on whether you should invest or not invest. And then what they did is about 35,000 of the 55,000 facilities published their rates online every night. And the 35, they're typically the, the newer, the better operated, the more sophisticated. You know, if you don't put your rates online, it's like going to kayak, searching for a flight and it says Delta call for price. And everybody else, American Airlines and United had their price. Nobody's going to call Delta and ask them for their price. Mm-hmm. They want to book it right there. And so uh, price is really important. And a lot of the sophisticated operators, they change prices every day. It's very dynamic pricing based on demand and how many units they have left. So you can really draw conclusions on how a market is performing or how a property is performing based on the rates. It's like if it's the last flight from New York to Las Vegas uh, on New Year's Eve and it's the last seat on the last flight, it's going to be really expensive. And that's the same you know, analogy in self-storage. If it's the last 10 by 10 on the ground floor in a really hot market, it's probably going to be expensive. And so what, what we've done is taken all this data, rates, 
new single family home growth. Of course, of course, of course, that drives new demand, new multifamily growth, migration data, traffic data, and then all the other like existing data sources of what's the population, you know, what's the household income, what percentage of renters. And essentially what we do is stack all that data up together and compare it to other other opportunities to really look for where we should be investing. And the way I think about what we do is instead of finding a needle in a haystack, which would be a lot easier with access to, to any data, we get presented with a haystack full of needles and we just get to choose the needle that we're most excited about and pluck that one out and do it again and again and again. Uh, so that's really our thesis. We uh, committed a first fund. It was a $53 million discretionary ground up fund uh, that's committed to 10 assets all over the country. And we're wrapping up a second fund. The data that we have for finding ground up opportunities is, is as applicable when we look for acquisition opportunities, we can use data for that too. And, you know, so we're, we're really, you know, a tech company, a data company that capitalizes via the real estate component. Sure. So the, the existing facilities that you're hunting for that you get, how do you, how do you market to them? How do you source to, do you try to buy directly from the, those operators or off the MLS, you wait for them to go on sale. What what what's the situation there? Yeah, uh, it's a great question, and there has been a lot of interest in self storage from a lot of different capital. You know, Blackstone jumped in, Singapore Sovereign Wealth, Bill Gates Cascade Fund, because again, it it performed so well. You know, here's the fourth recession in a row, and it did really well through the pandemic. So. There is a lot of interest and frankly, positions are, you know, we're at scary prices, I think at the moment. And it doesn't mean there aren't good deals out there, but when you have so much capital looking for a home, uh, prices get bid up, cap rates go down and your margin of error becomes very thin. So if you miss rates, if you miss the CapEx budget, you could find yourself underwater on some of these deals because there's so much capital chasing them. Uh, we're more focused on off-market deals, of which, you know, takes a lot of work, frankly. And it's, uh, you know, this is self-storage is inaccessible. I think one of the reasons it's it's done well or it has a, a really good reputation is this, it's because it's accessible to a lot of people. You know, uh, RV storage or non-climate control storage can go on a lot of different types of real estate can be a small capex you can get really good debt for you know if you own and operate it yourself so with that i mean the the disadvantage storage has is it gets overbuilt every single cycle it gets overbuilt frankly 16 was the peak of the last cycle and you can see the rates just trending downwards from 16 really until the pandemic when you had a huge boost in demand that raised rates again. And so why did rates trend down from 16 to call it 20? There was just too much product in the market. We'd overbuilt. Certain cities got hit harder than others. You know, you know, Denver got hit hard. Tampa got hit hard. Nashville, Austin, a lot of the cities that were, you know, so excited and attractive for other real estate, they got hit. Uh, so 
you know, anybody that's looking to get into storage, just know you really want to pay attention to what's also coming online that could compete with you because you might be able to handle one new competitor for your facility. But if two more pop up, even one more pops up, that could lead to a lot slower lease up, a lot lower prices. And it just takes time. You know, we, we say it a lot in real estate time solves lots of issues, but you got to have the time to get through those issues and uh, you know, storage, uh, storage can get overbuilt. Sure. So with the database that you guys have accumulated and, and, and surfaced, is that part of the algorithm then is to see what other building permits and other things that are outstanding so that you don't run into the type of competition that you're, you're referring to when you're building something new? Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, there, there's always people like people list products. I mean, nobody really wants an overbuilt market. It's not good for anyone. So the industry is pretty transparent about what new storage is coming online. You got to take it to the next step though. You got to go and visit the local planning department, go talk to the local brokers, you know, get a sense for what else is happening in that market. Because if you're just relying on data, it could be right or could be wrong. That's a big gamble. So, you know, make sure talk to as many people as you can so that you really do know. And maybe it's your home market and, you know, everything that goes on in that town. And that's great. But not everybody knows their home markets uh, as well or not. Somebody might be developing, you know, in a different market. They, they just don't know. And so, yeah, find out everything you can you can know about what's going on there. Sure. Well, based on the data that you guys pull, uh, you, you, according to your website, you even say uh, outsize returns. What I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you mean by that type of phrasing? Yeah, uh, the way I think about it is that we look at so many opportunities that we only get to pick what are the A plus opportunities because when you can use data and you can essentially look at a thousand opportunities a day, which no human could do unless you had a team of a hundred humans or you know 500 people working on it. But back to my comment about what a commodity storage is, where data plays a more significant role in underwriting. And to take that as a, a bit of a tangent, you know, multifamily, people care about what the pool size is or what the gym is or the backsplash or what floor you're on or does it have a dog park? And any one of those might turn somebody off. You know, it doesn't have a dog park. I'm not going there. Uh, it doesn't have Pelotons. I can't go there. But mm -hmm. with storage, we don't have that. You know, it's all about what I said. How close is it to my house? Is it available? What's the price? Because it is a very, very temporary, or it should be. Most people think it is a very temporary decision. I only need it 90 days. I don't really care that much. So, uh, you know, with that, it's back to my comment of you can use data to make investment decisions. And we get an opportunity to look at so many opportunities, look at so many land parcels or acquisition partner parcels that we only get to pick, only have to pick the ones that have the, the highest returns. And that's a bit of the advantage. It's almost like, uh, you know, knowing a local market so well and, and 
in real estate, there's no substitute for having that local presence, that local expertise. And so if you're developing somewhere where you don't have it, you know, you need to create a relationship, whether it's a broker, an architect, a planner, a civil engineer that can give you that local insight. Because for us, data can only take you so far. You know, data can't data can lead you to to the opportunities, but it still means real estate's real estate. What is the access? What's the visibility? What do the neighbors look like? You know, how do you make a left in or a left out? What are the trees around it like? You know, real estate's got to be seen and felt and appreciated. And so um, having that hands-on experience is, is, uh, is good. When, when it comes to returns, we look at everything in like a four-year IRR because it's typically on ground-up construction, 12 months to build. 24 to 30 months to lease it up and then call it another six to 12 months to sell. So that's, that's really our marker. And we'd like to see deals that have a 30 IRR in that four-year timeframe. And uh, there's some pressure certainly on that with interest rates and construction costs, but those have been negated because rents and self-storage for the most part have gone up well in excess of what interest rates and construction costs impact that those have had on the other opportunity. Sure. Well, since you brought up, you know, raising interest rates and a few other things, the market conditions are changing rapidly right now. How has that changed how you're approaching some of these opportunities? Well, certainly when we look at something in a seven year time frame, the IRR is cut by three or 400 basis points, just because you have a much larger interest reserve line item you have a lot less certainty on a refi, refinance scenario. Like certainly what we like to do in real estate is build it, create the value, refinance it, pull some money back by increasing the loan, then holding on to it. And, you know, we used to be, we used to feel pretty good about where refi rates were going to come in. There's just more uncertainty. You know, when is the Fed going to stop? Where does this end? Rising interest rates absolutely will slow down real estate. It'll, it'll affect the prices people are willing to pay, the construction risk groups are willing to take, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, there's been, it's you know, I'd say the last year has been one of the nuttiest markets. I think it, in my mind, it surpasses 2006, seven, which you know, back then, it felt like anything you did was a winner. I feel like in the last couple of years, not everything, but the things that were winning went one big. Multifamily one big, industrial big, storage big. You know, but there were some losers. Office that still has not shaken out. Senior living's been crushed. Some hotels, some hospitality's really been tough. So others have not. So, what I think about this time versus last time, the winners won bigger and not everybody was a winner. Well, you know, a a lot of people that listen to this show are getting into real estate investing and they're considering getting into storage rentals. Knowing what you know now, what are some of the things that you wish you would have known when starting in storage investing? That's a great question. You know, probably the appreciation of discounting on lease up. We underestimated the impact of that and it is significant. And let me explain it. If you have a brand new facility that just opened 
and it's competing with five other facilities. And you need 40 units rented per month to lease up. They only need four, you know, to continue staying stabilized. So you have 10 times more units that you need to fill than they do. How do you fill those units? There's two ways of doing it. Uh, one is you could spend more marketing dollars. That has some impact, but the real lever is price. You just drop price. You make it more attractive. You take, you make it obvious that your 10 by 10 is running for 130 and their 10 by 10 is running for 165. Like, you know, that $30 matters to somebody. So you got to take that discount. And sometimes that discount was 30%, 40% just to get them occupied. And, you know, one of the attributes about storage that makes it so attractive is it's month to month leases. So you can raise rents. Uh, you won't raise them every month because people will move out because they'll be very unhappy. But you could if you wanted to, you know, you can easily raise rents and about 75 percent of the customers pay on credit card. So I don't know if your credit card statement looks like mine. You know, I don't know what that Amazon charge was. I don't know what I just uh, Apple you know, build me for it's the, you know, storage was kind of the original subscription model, just hitting again and again and again on a credit card. And, uh, and so these discounts, if you discount for 30 months, it might take another 30 months to get those people to a rate, those existing customers to a rate that matches market. So somebody comes in at $40 below the market, Nine months later, you give them a 10% increase. Nine months later, another 10%. Nine months later, a 10, another increase. So 27 months down the road, they're up somewhere near market. And, uh, you know, the opposite of that strategy is you keep prices relatively high and you lease up slower. Different operators have different ideas of what's better. If you're going to operate it yourself, you should have a strategy. You should have some flexibility. You know, make sure you have a really great web presence because that's where business gets done on self-storage, especially through COVID, you know, where some of the big operators like Extra Space, you know, within a couple of months, they flipped to complete online leasing. They used to have customers come in to sign a lease and to meet with somebody and walk their unit. Now it's Sign up online. Here's your unit. Here's the access code. Never really talk to somebody. So, you know, I think another thing to really pay attention to is if you're going to operate it yourself, just make sure you understand what your competition is doing and how to be better or on par with them, whatever that is. Because I don't think you're going to have a better website than Extra Space. You're not going to have a better call center. You're not going to have a better marketing or branding. So what is it? You know, it's customer service or price or you know, something unique that you did in the unit that might be attractive to your market. So for an example, you might have more contractors. Contractors need an outlet. Contractors need a larger unit. They need turning bays, ter larger turning bays for their trailers. You know, are there things that you can do that allow you to compete, not on a evil, even playing level with some of the big read operators. So, you know, it's not a complicated business, but the margin, the, the line between being successful and unsuccessful, it's a it's a thin line. And just make sure you have really enough time to if, if things slow down, you you have enough capital and time to get through it. Sure. Well, that kind of leads me to the next question is the concept of 
if somebody is looking to get into storage units, what would be the benefit of tackling a project on themselves versus joining a syndication like what you have going on? I think it's, uh, do you want to be active or not? There's some people that they just have a need to be active and engaged and they want to do it. And if they want to do it, there's no convincing them that you should go a different direction. They just want to do it. I'm kind of like that in certain aspects. I know I could use somebody else, but I just want to do it. Syndication is definitely more for passive investors. There's two ways of participating in that world. Either you can uh, invest in a fund. The fund gives you diversity because you get to invest in, you know, 10 or 50 different projects versus one, but you also don't get to pick. Most funds are discretionary, which means the fund manager gets to pick. So that was us. You know, our doc said, we're going to develop storage. That's all we're going to do. And it'll be ground up primarily. But we got to pick the markets and the site. So there it's a lot about trust. Do you trust them to make really good decisions? You know, there's a lot less risk in a fund. Because once you've given your money, most fund documents say the fund manager cannot ask you for additional money. So your commitment's your commitment. You're out, you're done. Versus if you did it by yourself or you did a one-off project, you know, the upside is you get to choose. You get to know exactly what you're investing in. You get to see the details of exactly what's behind, why am I investing in this market in Florida? But if it doesn't work out well, they're probably going to ask you for more capital. And if you don't have additional capital, you get diluted. Or if you're doing it on your own and you don't have partners, you know, do you have enough capital to see it through? Or if you do have partners, are your partners going to be there if it if it goes if it goes wrong? Debt is another huge factor in that most construction debt is recourse. So somebody's going to have to guarantee to a bank that uh, they'll repay it if something goes bad. Positions can be recourse, but sometimes it's not. A lot of people don't have the the balance sheets to get the recourse debt. Uh, don't like that. They're 55 years old and they could lose their entire nest egg on a deal gone bad. I think I think oftentimes when somebody sees a deal they could do on their own, uh, they see the upside. I could make this much money instead of having to share it. You know, if I just did it all by myself, I could make I could make this. And a lot of times I don't think what people think about is, well, what could I lose or what's the worst case scenario? So I think in your best interest to shock everything you're working on. What happens if rates go up from four and a half to seven and cap rates go up 100 basis points and you lease up 10 months slower and your rates are 10 percent less than you thought? Because that stuff can happen. That's real estate. It could happen the opposite, too, where all those things go in your favor. But but we don't I don't care about when everything goes right. I focus on what the big number is. I want to know if everything goes wrong. What does that number look like? And, you know, what I think about is if if you are thinking about the downside and have planned for the downside and can handle the downside, the upside always takes care of itself. Sure. Well, you know, I just want to remind everybody to head over to dxd.capital, learn a little bit more about the projects and a few other things that's going on here with Drew and his team. But, uh, I, I want to 
take a right turn on you here a little bit, Drew, and understand, <clears throat> get your perspective on something. You've you've had a variety of experience in various asset classes. What is one of your biggest mistakes? What did you learn for it? Learn from it, and how did it change your investing strategies? Great question. You know, we did quite a few senior living projects, and I mentioned it earlier that you know we were really good at real estate. We knew real estate. We knew what to build, where to build it, how to build it, but really ignored. Oh, I don't. Ignored might not be the right term. Really underestimated the operating side of that business. Same thing with hotels. I mean, it's an operating business that utilizes real estate, you know, versus self-storage. We have two employees. A senior living facility of the same size might have 90 employees. Labor's been a huge challenge. Costs, operations, you know, availability, been a huge challenge. So, you know, another, there's a lot of smaller developers or operators that get into these beehive models of senior living where you buy a house and remodel it and you have you know, six bedrooms. That's an operating business. Just just be wary of what's real estate and what's an operating business. And if you're good at real estate, a lot of us that are good at real estate aren't good at operating businesses. And so when when I think about senior living, you know, you or hotel, use that as an example, a non-flagged hotel, you could build the right product at the right time in the right market. But if you don't have the right operator, there's no way you're going to be successful. Versus the opposite, you could be off on the market, off on the product, off on the timing, you know, not totally off. But if you have the right operator, you have a better chance of, of being successful. And so, just do appreciate that industrial is a little different than self-storage in that industrial is pure real estate. There's no, there's no operating business. You hire somebody to take care of the lawn. You hire somebody to take care of the HVAC. You hire a broker. You don't, you're not operating anything. Self-storage is an operating business. It does take people. You have to do things. There is customer service. Don't ignore the operation side of it to just stay focused on the real estate because if you don't do them both very well, you're not going to be successful. And then uh, I would love to hear your, one of your home runs. Tell us about your current investing strategies and you you have a, a situation right now that has exceeded expectations. Yeah, we built a, built a self-storage facility uh, in a Western market, ground up three-story, about 110,000 square feet. Class A, uh, public storage is going to be our operator. So big REIT operator. And that's, I should say, DXD is not the operator. We're the real estate component. And then we hire an operator to manage it for us because we know we can't do better than they can. And I'd rather pay them a fee to do it and use their brand so you wouldn't know if, if public storage owns it or we own it. It's all going to look the same. So we built this, we committed to this, you know, right at the start of the pandemic. And if you looked at what prices did during the lockdowns, they dropped because the REITs, the more sophisticated operators, didn't know what was going to happen with demand. And back to my comment, they only have one lever. They just dropped pricing which is kind of scary if you've committed to a project and all of a sudden it's 15% below the rates that you thought it was. 
So then the pandemic, you know, softens up, opens up a little bit and rates go through the roof because people are moving out bedroom furniture for home offices or home gyms, or they're remodeling or they're moving for jobs or sons are moving in with, with parents, parents are moving in with, with children. Rates go way up because demand goes right, way up. And then you see all this capital flooding into self-storage because it's done really well. So we built it for 12 and a half. Uh, we got an unsolicited offer. Uh, takes about, took us about 10 months to build it, 11 months to build it. About seven months into our construction, we got an offer for 23 and a half million to buy it with zero leases, you know, the day we opened the door. So that's like a, it was financed at 65% loan to cost. And it was like a 4X multiple on cash. And you know, that's not normal. Uh, those don't come along all the time. My mind isn't reset to, yeah, we should get this on everything. And sometimes it's just about timing. Sometimes in, in our business and real estate, it's about making a move when nobody else is, seeing something, not getting caught up in it's so bad right now. I can't see what the future is going to look like because it always gets better or it always gets worse. It always happens. So as real estate investors, you got to see through the clutter today and see what's going to happen. That one, it was an awesome product in an awesome market with you know an awesome opportunity to exit because the timing and the fact that we built it when you know, not a whole lot of people were building. Mm-hmm. No, that's, I appreciate you sharing that. So again, head over to DX, dxd.capital. I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes. But, but Drew, I really appreciate your time here today. But before I let you go, is there a question or concept you wish we would have covered here tonight? Great. I don't know. I always like to talk about what's going on in the macro economy. And uh, I don't know. I, I feel like I saw this recession coming a while ago. When things were so hard, everything was so hard to get done. Uh, and sessions aren't bad for real estate. It allows things to get reset, allows prices to calm down. We've made more money in down times when there was more opportunity than in really good times. You know, now is the time when the market's down, that's when you plant the seeds. So, you know, there'll be some bumpy roads ahead for real estate investors. Make sure you have enough time. Make sure you're not over leveraged, but don't lose sight on uh, laying those seeds and getting ready to harvest something when it gets better down the road. Well, I can't ask for a better way to end this episode. I really appreciate your time, Drew. Again, it's dxd.capital. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. I hope you'll take me up on that. Thanks so much. This was awesome. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.